everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Alex Svetsky and Mark Moss, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Yeah, thanks, Rob. It's a great always, love. Uh, Thank you. Always a pleasure, <laughs> always a pleasure talking happen. to you. Great to have you guys on again. Both waited. <laughs> I love these group interviews, even though they we might occasionally step on each other's toes. They're still a lot of fun. Um, mm -hmm. We are jumping back into your the book you guys authored together, The Uncommunist Manifesto. And when this time we're starting in chapter two, which is titled The Competent Individual. And if I may, I'd like to just read a little excerpt to get us rolling here. You guys wrote, the individual is a member of a collective, and in fact, depending on the form of measurement used, whether skills, job, race, gender, political leaning, sexual orientation, etc., may simultaneously be a member of multiple collectives. In fact, at different stages of his life, he may even be part of a divergent and opposing collectives. As such, one cannot measure an individual merely by the group he or she is in at a particular point in time or in a particular place, but must do so by their character, behavior, and values. Thus, we have real individuals that make up a diverse set of groups, but no real group that a diverse set of individuals always belong to. And this is kind of 
at the you know it's part of the crux of the problem with marxism that he boils things down to group identity and establishes the conflict between these classes um and it's just a lower resolution way of looking at the world because ultimately as you guys said we're each individuals we're involved in lots of groups uh sometimes those groups get along sometimes the groups are antagonistic but there's not a one-to-one mapping of like individual to a class you know you're, you're you're involved in lots of classes or lots of groups so um yeah, you guys want to expand on that a little bit? Like, what is it about the, what is it about Marxism that he so blatantly missed the idea of the individual? I mean, it seems kind of obvious, at least in retrospect. I think it's this, uh, you know, Marxist, Marxist or even Keynesian viewpoint where you're trying to standardize everything so you could try to understand things a little bit differently. And so they want to strip out the, uh, dynamics of what this individual could be this identity and um, you know we talk about like through Keynesian economics right trying to boil everybody down to like a line on a spreadsheet to take away their identity so I think it's part that but it's also part um, to create this this struggle artificially create this struggle Uh, Karl Marx has been kind of refuted by what today would be known as neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, where they said, well, he got it wrong uh, because of the economic side and he pitted people against uh, people based off of the classes, the rich and the poor. And so uh, today under neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, we need to look at all these different subsets. So kind of to the point that we made, um, there's it's not just rich and poor, there's all these different classes that the individual could be part of. But they still miss the point that you still can't boil somebody down to that one specific category. We're like we're not defined defined by our race or our sex, gender, et cetera. And so they're still boiling it down. I think uh, a, I saw this week, uh, well, at the time of this recording, uh, you know, the world's uh, on fire because uh, Italy has elected this extreme far right uh, new PM. And in her, in the speech that kind of went viral, she talks about how I can't be a Christian, a woman, a mother, a female. Instead, I have to be uh, parent one or parent two or individual X. And they want to strip away our identity so we can be the perfect consumer. Mm. And I thought that was pretty powerful, which kind of goes back to this, right? If they can strip away our identity, stick us into a bucket and then we can just be the perfect consumer. We can just be a line on a spreadsheet that we could just somehow uh, kind of get rid of. Um, so I think I think it's them trying to, again, centrally plan, trying to play God and plan that, um, as well as create, create this class struggle between all of us so we're constantly fighting against each other. Yeah, I think to, to add briefly to that is this idea of all – all sort of good stories or good battles uh, need a an enemy and the enemy when it's kind of like really vaguely defined you can kind of point and kind of say you know hey there's the enemy in that direction and it's like well who it's the guys wearing red and anyone wearing red is the enemy so just go kill them um, so in, in the Marxian sense it's you know the it was the rich, you know, and, and as Mark said, like you, you slap whatever label and, and they become the enemy. It reminds me of, there was a video that I, 
saw back in 2020 and it was this um it was just it drove me crazy watching it it was during the blm uh clashes and there was this one dude and it, i think it was in the uk actually and he was just standing out front of a shop and he had a sign and all the sign said it was a cardboard sign and it said um i defend the right to free speech that's all i said and he was a white dude obviously and the there was this mob of psychotic black lives matter weirdos with um you know these crazy guilty white women you know at the front saying um fuck you fascist fuck you fascist <laughs> and just because you know the dude was a white male, you know, of like, you know, probably 30 something years old. He was labeled the evil one when the people actually behaving like fascists, you know, in the group siding with BLM, um, you know, that they were able to effectively act as abhorrent individuals in, in the most fascist manner possible, but label him as that and therefore project that he is the evil one it was the like one of the most disgusting videos i actually ended up doing like a short little podcast uh myself on it just like got in front of a camera and spoke about it you know back in 2020 because it drove me crazy but that's the problem with this stuff is that un under these labels number one is that you can actually uh place and I guess this is the danger of this sort of labeling, like beyond whether there was a, a malevolent desire in creating broad labels or not, which we obviously believe there was, but let's just give Marx the benefit of that. It wasn't, it was an accident. It was just, you know, the easiest or cleanest way for him to, or the simplest sort of, I shouldn't say cleanest, simplest way for him to describe the protagonist and the antagonist. Um, the downside of it is that, yeah, good individuals can purely by virtue of where they've inherited their wealth from how they've generated their wealth or what color their skin is, or what race they're a part of, et cetera, um, can be grouped with the evil group and bad individuals just by labeling themselves in the group that is the victim, you know, or the protagonist or whatever, however it's been labeled as um, they are absolved of their disgusting behavior. Um, and and that fundamentally, I, I I think erodes the structure of civilization. And I mean, that's at the end of the day, what Marxism has done um, as a philosophy, as an ideology. It that's also real. it. Go ahead. I was gonna say it also. Um, it also then would have you believe that uh, people within that said group um, would automatically get along and have no. Uh, it would have no struggle between themselves, right? So um, everybody in the poor class automatically gets along and there's no struggle between people in the poor class or everybody in the rich class get along or everybody in the black class or everybody, you know, minority identity class or whatever. Um, obviously, we see that uh, more and more today. We, we're seeing, you know, with the politics where it's like, we can't believe this minority group is going to vote this way. And it's like <laughs> the minority group is made up of all different types of individuals that all have their own wants, needs, and desires. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, just very poor way to look at the world. I mean, you just you're not getting you're not getting an information richness, right? Like as you say, this group is going to vote this way. That's not what actually happens, right? There's 
that group is composed of many individuals that all vote different ways. Uh, you can speak in aggregates or averages as kind of like a useful way of generalizing, but you have to rec remember that you are generalizing, right? It's not, it's not actual things. You're just kind of drawing a circle around a group of people and assigning a label. And to mistake that thing for the reality, I think this creates a lot of terrible consequences. And it does seem related, you know, this idea of making people just a row on reducing people to be a row on a spreadsheet rather than an individual. Um, this gets into that book, Seeing Like a State, talks about how the state strives to make taxpayers very legible. So like you need to know exactly what where people are and what people are doing so you can tax them. So uh, this seems to be related to that to some extent. And I don't know, the whole class struggle thing, it makes, you know, it's it's interesting right now. We see the world, the state is funding a lot of this woke pseudo-religious ideology nonsense, right? That's taxpayer subsidized or the state is allocating funds to try and push these ideologies. And it seems like it's almost a diversion tactic, I guess, to get people fighting amongst themselves rather than pointed at the actual problem, which is the theft that's occurring all the time through taxation and inflation. Um, and it works, man. It works like a charm because I, people here in the US, right? It's all red versus blue or whatever your political identity is. And not enough people are talking about central banking and, and things like that. Um, anything else on that before you, or do you guys want to move on? No, I, I think, yeah, I think that's good. Okay. All right. This is a bit of a long one, but I think this is a good excerpt here. You guys wrote for this work uh, in reference to the book, you said we counter the Marxist summation of the communist manifesto with our own in a sentence, the preservation of private property. Now, you might say, do you mean the large mansions of the super rich who exploit the poor? And we would say it doesn't matter. In order for a system of competence to work, the same rules must apply to all participants. First rule is that each individual owns themselves, for they, their thoughts, and their mind are their primary form of private property. The second rule is that which an individual creates or produces using their time, energy, or the resources they've appropriated through voluntary trade, or that are yet to be claimed, may become their private property. The third rule is that an individual must survive, and as such, their action is generally directed towards self-preservation in the immediate term first, followed by the same, same across longer time horizons. This is time preference in action. Now always outweighs later, but as we solve for now, we can begin to expand our perspective, lengthen our time horizon, and think more about later. The more we're freed up to think about later, the more we can delay gratification and build more current capital for future use. In fact, what building capital, savings as a pure example, does is reduce the uncertainty of the future. It's an act of self-preservation. These core principles form the basis of civilization. In their absence, we can only have regression and de-civilization. I mean, this is the drum that we beat repeatedly in Bitcoin circles. Um, as you said earlier, Alex, like that, this is foundational. This is the bedrock. This is the basis, the bottom of civilization. Like if you don't have property, 
you have barbarity, right? You're, we're just a bunch of apes, basically. Um, and so I, I'm just I'm kind of amazed in a way that um, people bought into this. Right? I, I guess I guess it just communicates the lack of understanding surrounding these topics, surrounding economic topics in particular, like property itself. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Like how is it something about the explanation that's not clear enough? Or is it is this a result of all of the the seeds of confusion that seem to be purposefully sown that people just are not grasping the idea of private property and its importance? Like how, how is this whole scheme perpetrated? I, th I think it's like the, uh, the fish that doesn't know what water is. And so, you know, you have this, this uh, billionaire in New York City that lives in this penthouse and takes his private helicopter to his ranch in Montana and looks out and goes, look how beautiful this is. We should keep, we should preserve the whole world so it all stays pristine like this without realizing it was through the management of the earth and fossil fuels and whatnot that allowed him to get to a point that he was able to have the penthouse and, and have the helicopter to get there. And so uh, to your point, yes, I mean, people don't really understand the need of private property, how private property works, economics works, because they don't need to. So this, this, this fish that's just grown up in this environment and doesn't realize how important the water is until they're pulled out of it. And so you kind of have to really think through these things in second, third, fourth, fifth order thinking to kind of really get to that. I, I've, uh, I've been working on this, this bigger thesis. And so I've been kind of going back and kind of reading this early civilization. And um, you understand how these hunter gatherers basically had to kind of chase food all the time. And they had to constantly move to find food. And then eventually they found that they could kind of grow some food, some wheat, but it was a lot of work to uh, boil it or to grind it up and turn it into some, some type of food they could eat. And so they spent all their time doing that um, and they couldn't do anything else. And right. And, uh, but it was because they had to have those calories. They couldn't live without that extension of their private property. Once they figured out a way to extend their life, extend their life's battery, that private property, they were able to kind of move on to bigger and better things. And so this is just an extension of that. If we're not able to save, uh, build up our life's battery that could allow me to not have to work tomorrow or um, next week so I could go work on a higher level task, um, then we're you know, if, if we're not freed up, then we don't have that long time perspective and we're never, never able to push our lives forward or collectively build the progress of the world forward. And so people just haven't thought of that because most of us haven't really had to worry about how do I get food for tomorrow? Um, I just spent the last week down in Mexico and part of it in Mexico City, which is in a very rich area. But then I went out into kind of the rural area and people are still hustling there every day. They need to get, a, I mean, they're literally probably making like two or $3 a day. Like every day they have to work to get that sustenance. So I think they probably get it a lot more than people in the United States will. The pain isn't high enough. Um, but I think, you know, you're, you're, you know, if you, if you can break it down, they can understand it, but yeah, it's just, it's just been lost. Yeah. Um I, I wanted to pull on the thread where where we say that, you know, it was kind of at the start, you know, uh, we would sum it up as the preservation of private property. And then we say, oh, do you mean the, you know, the rich man with the mansion or whatever? And we, you know, specifically said, yes, we do. We actually mean everyone. 
And I think this is really important because um, if you, if when you read the Communist Manifesto, Marx try and Marx actually tries to put some you know quotes in there. You know, he tries to bring some some sarcasm in it. Is like, you know, do you mean um, you know the the property of the of the poor person? Is like, no, I don't mean them. I mean just the property of the rich person. So so there was this there was this inherent like envy and double standard in how he thought that the rules should be applied. And I think this is a big, 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 big difference in the way, I guess, libertarians, Austrian econ, uh, Bitcoiners see the world versus how a, you know, a communist or Marxist minded person might see the world is that they think that different rules apply to different people based on, you know, once again, as we discussed, the person's category or their label or whatever they're defined as. Whereas I think a, a more literally a more fair and just world is that the same rules apply to everyone. And and that's the thing, like I've, I've, I just finished writing an article, which I'm going to release next month. Um, part of, you know, it's my little comeback for the remnant series, but I, I talk about in there that like the, the, the thing I love about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is right not that it's fucking here to help the disadvantaged and all this sort of shit. Like that's all fucking nice. But really what makes Bitcoin special is that it's right. And because it's right and because it uh, puts us on a sort of a level playing field in an economic sense, it means that if you win, you won because you were better, not because you fucking cheated because somehow you skewed the rules in your favor um, or different rules applied to you than to someone else. And that's kind of the game that's being played in the world today is that the only reason statists and parasites and bankers and you know all those type of scumbags actually win is because the fucking game is rigged. But that's not a win. That's actually a, you know, if you look at it from a, a an ancient philosophy sense, it's like, you know, the ancient philosophers of, you know, the, the Greek and Roman times, they they would tell you that a, a win that comes through cheating is an empty victory. Like it's not actually a victory. It doesn't make you, it doesn't come with valor or honor or integrity. It's a, it's a, it's a hollow uh, victory. And, and we've sort of lost that because the, the game has become so blind that everyone is charging in all sorts of different directions to try and cheat their way to the top. And once again, that hollows out civilization. I think that's, a big part of um, where we are now and what's wrong with the world. And yeah, I, I just can't stress enough the, the importance of that little component of the, um, of the excerpt that you read is that the rules apply to all. Um, and then we'll have all the differences and all the diversity and everything we need because fundamentally human beings are different. There's no need to try and uh, label everyone and group everyone and do it all by some arbitrary decree. Like the, the, the stuff, you know, humanity does it itself. There's no need to try and play God. And it's, it's I don't know, it, it just has sad ramifications as, as we've obviously seen. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> that line where Marx, you said Marx said, no, not the property of the poor person, just the property of the rich person. There's such an inherent arbitrariness to that you know if you really stop and think about that 
again, like first order thinking, you're like, oh, great, I'm poor, I want to be rich. That sounds great, Mr. Marx. But if you actually think one layer deeper, you're like, wait a minute, who decides who's rich and who's poor? Who's drawing the line, right? Who's the enforcer of that policy on property? And when you start to think through the those effects, like it's pretty obvious which direction it's going to go, right? Whoever's drawing the line is writing the rules effectively. If you give someone the power to write the rules, well, surprise, surprise, they always win at the expense of mm -hmm. everyone else. And so there's another. So sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. No, I was going to say that the the other layer that follows on from that is that if you may, if you you create such a disincentive to be rich, then what's going to happen is everyone's going to be fighting to be poor. <laughs> you know, to, to right. everyone's going to be fighting to be the protagonist. And this is funny. We're walking through Berlin, um, me and the wife, uh, a week and a half ago, and we walked past the socialist uh, cafe shop. And, you know, it had all sorts of, you know, stupid shirts in there from Che Guevara and all this sort of stuff. And there was like, you know, COVID deniers are not welcome in here and all this crap. Like it was this fucking disgusting shop, right? And, um, and she she's like, what's wrong with these people? And she's like, you know, I I because she, she grew up in the Dominican Republic, and she's like, what kind of the the lefties and the communists like originally the anti-authoritarian type people? Like, weren't they kind of you know the rage against the machine sort of type people? I'm like, yeah, it's like something fucking flipped, and you know they've kind of become the 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 weird NPC who's like pro-authority, pro-authoritarian, and stuff's going strange. But part of our conversation, like where I was trying to describe like why socialists and communists always end up losing is that they actually disincentivize prosperity and wealth, right? Like, and, and they, they incentivize poverty. And I, I've actually got an unpopular opinion on this. If taxation were to exist, I think taxation should be a much higher bracket. Like if you're like, if you earn zero to 10,000, for example, you should be taxed 80%. And the more you earn, the less you should be taxed. Like if we want to create an incentive model for moving up in the world, like fucking invert the whole damn thing. Because like by definition, what we're doing is we're disincentivizing people to become wealthy. So anyway, I'm, I'm go, going off on a tangent there, but it just, as you said, the first order of thinking is, oh yeah, let's just, uh, you know, take from the rich and to the poor. But then, you know, the second order of thinking is like, who the fuck decides? Then the third order of thinking is, well, hold on. I want to be poor now because I'm going to just get free shit instead of becoming rich because why should I be rich when I'm going to then do all the work and take care of everyone? I may as well just get a handout. So it's like it really just fucking just unravels all of the all of the hard work that our ancestors have done. It just unravels the whole fucking thing. I would, I would also add on to that disincentivizing. So, I mean, that, that's just the common thread, right? So it's the Keynesians and the Marxists, just they miss the human incentive, the human motivation. And so, you know, Marx is like each according to their ability, each according to their needs. So uh, I just want to do something the market doesn't value. So I'll just do something nobody cares about. And then you go, you know, spend eight years of your life going through medical school, make all that money, but then give part of it to me. And the person would be like, well, why would I spend eight years going to medical school if I'm going to make the same as you doing nothing? And so that that incentive structure. And so kind of back to uh, the example of the rich person or the fish in the water, um, you know, they were able to get rich. They were able to have this quality of life through this division of labor and through this progress that we've had and through these inventions and, and service and whatnot. And so if you disincentivize everybody to be equally poor, 
what do they, what motivation incentive do they have to increase their education, to be an engineer coder, to develop this new technology, this new piece of machinery, this new jet, this new um, yacht that you want uh, to be able to service or fix the yacht that you want or build these ports so you can bring your boats in or whatever. And so it's like they, they disincentivize all of that without really understanding how much that will affect the world that they live in uh, and take away even their own quality of living, I think. Yeah, it's uh, incentives drive human action. And if you take away the incentive to be productive and solve problems for other people, well, surprise, surprise, we get a lot more problems, right? We become, you, it's net wealth destructive. So then the you start taking away the wealth or the capital. And what are we doing? We're We're increasing the number of problems and the amount of dissatisfaction in the world. And so it seems like Marx was kind of preying on ignorance in a way that, you know, everyone wants more stuff. Everyone wants to be wealthier. That's pretty much a universal. Um, but Marx just sold this false solution that, oh, here's how we fix it. Abolish the property relationship and we'll, you know, take from the rich, give to the poor. Sounds very simple on the surface. And then you think one or two layers beneath the surface and it's catastrophic to say the least. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, brought to you by Swan. Now, this is going to be a two-day event in Los Angeles, November 10th and 11th, 2022. And if you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference yet, I highly recommend it as there really is no better way to get integrated into the Bitcoin community. Speakers announced so far include Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, uh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. Uh, Michael Saylor is even quoted as saying, this is going to be the event of the year. So you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, so go to PacificBitcoin.com and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get your tickets today. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This is going to be a three-day event held May 18th through 20th, 2023 in Miami, Florida. This is going to be the biggest Bitcoin event of the year, and the past two years in Miami have been simply amazing. 
Speakers already announced for 2023 include Michael Saylor, Alex Gladstein, Corey Clipston, and many others. Last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway specifically for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Property, all we're basically saying is, again, let people be free, right? Be free to own yourself and then combine your self-ownership with things in the world and then trade those things with other self-owned people, increase the division of labor, increase wealth creation. Life and liberty are pretty easy sells, right? You approach most people in the world and say, hey, do you believe in protecting life or protecting liberty, freedom? Like most people would agree, I think. But for some reason, property is like considered to be in this different bucket, but it's the same thing. It's like, you're just letting people keep whatever they earned, whatever they justly acquired. So what is it about? I mean, we have life, liberty, and property as this kind of trio, but for some reason, and maybe this is a result of Marxist, I don't know if brainwashing is too strong of a word, but has, has property been broken off of this life and liberty trio such that people perceive it differently when in fact, I mean, I think we'd all agree here. It's essentially the same thing. It's just freedom. It's it's a word you used when you described that problem. So you said um, uh, most people would recognize life and liberty, but um, they don't look at property they've justly acquired the same. And it's that word justly. And I think that's the problem, right? And so um, LeBron James justly earned his rings that he, you know, or, or his uh, records that he broke or whatever. But did the rich person justly acquire their wealth in an unfair system that they have unequal access to? And so I think that's the hangup, right? And we, I think we talked about this in one of our earlier sections. Uh, but I don't think people look at it as justly. Um, and, and that, I think, is inherently the problem. So they look at and, and back to Marxism, right? It's like, uh, hey, poor people, uh, you're, you're oppressed. You're a victim. 
You have no chance of ever getting ahead. You don't have what these people have. You, you, all you have is your labor. It never equates to capital. So these, these rich people, they're oppressing you um, and they're getting it unjustly because they're oppressing you, because they're holding you down. And so it creates this and it preys on these human emotions of envy and greed. Um, and so I think that, that that's the key word. They don't look at it as justly acquired. Um, I guess maybe they would look um, as all individual poor people. Hey, this poor person has this these poor people things and I have my poor people things. Maybe they had recognized uh, the private property rights differently within their subset, but not to the rich people who in their words got them or in their minds got them unjustly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, that, that's, that's a good point. And, and to kind of extend on that, you see the the hang up about property kind of spilling into everything else with the word privilege, right? You know, now, now your, your life is privileged because you were, you know, born in X country or your skin color is, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, and, and that starts to, you know, encroach on the life and liberty component of it by creating, you know, guilt around, um, you know, things that, people are either born with or that people have acquired and and yeah there's a lot of as you said mark you know the the justly piece that everyone has an you know they know that the game is somehow rigged and they know that something's unfair or unjust and i guess because there's a lot of you know like unfairness has basically been baked into the game of life you know and into civilization effectively you know, is there anything that's justly acquired at the moment? It's it's a tricky tricky question to answer at a you know in a really zoomed out sort of fashion. Um, yeah, so so I know there's there's that sort of component of the confusion, and I think the um, yeah, I'm I'm just gonna stop there for the moment and kind of think through that a little bit more. It seems like maybe there's this presumption again people that don't understand economics there seems to be or at least there was and i think probably still is is a general presumption that if someone is rich that they acquired that wealth unjustly Mm -hmm. right especially if you're if you're below someone in the wealth hierarchy and you don't understand economics you're at least willing to accept the narrative that the reason that person is above you in the wealth hierarchy is has to do with some form of injustice, let's say, if that's even a word. But again, that's clearly rooted in ignorance of economics. Um, and Marx, it just seems like Marxism just preyed upon that. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's funny, had Marx, inst- instead of advocating for the abolition of private property, if he had advocated for the abolition of taxation, <laughs> an abolition of central banking, like that could have been, that's pretty in line with economic reality, right? That's the real problem is people are having their property preyed upon. That's what's undoing the process of civilization. But he went the 180 degree different direction and just attacked property rather than the thing that's attacking property. Mm, Something you said just then just triggered a thought in my head. So uh, what you said about like, if you, you know, if you're, in a, in a status or economic sense below the person above you and you have this you know natural predisposition to think that you know they acquired something justly because 
you know, in some way, shape or form, they're above you. So th- that, I actually had a very visceral experience the other day. So bottom level. Uh, sorry, guys. I I think your story just blew my power. So that's key. <laughs> 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 I'm, in, I'm in Nashville. I never have any issues at all here. And I just did like a quick flash right when you said, I had an epiphany and I was like, the power flash. It's weird because he kept talking for quite a while and then um, you were texting me, but he was still talking and you would just look like frozen. And then, then when you dropped your image dropped out, then I said recording stopped. Mm. So I got the recording, the previous one, I just restarted it. So uh, if you can pick up your story, Alex, around the epiphany part, yeah. So, okay. I'll see if I can remember. So the, the, the epiphany was to do with the fact that, um, kind of the, as I was laying down and felt the warm droplets sort of dropping on me, I, I thought of how easy it is to be kind of uncomfortable, but not uncomfortable enough to really get up and put the effort in to climb and to think that, oh my, it must be so nice up there with the warmth, you know? But then when I got up and forced myself to climb and step up on, you know, because the, there was these stones in, you know, these beautiful fucking stones in the um, in the steam room and you could sort of climb up and basically, you know, what's the word like kind of enter different realms of heat different layers of heat mm. based different on how the steam room was yeah literally different strata and the higher up that the hotter it got and i thought fuck the the top levels are not meant for many like they're they're for few because the heat is so difficult to uh to bear but it the illusion that it's so easy up there it's so privileged up there is such a sham because it's not it's actually difficult to bear that responsibility to bear that uh, weight and it was funny because um the wifey she was just sort of like laying down and chilling um and enjoying kind of like you know leaning against the rock instead of climbing and she sort of just saw me like you know standing there like trying to like she's like i could see you conquering something and i was like yeah fuck yeah i was like <laughs> like i felt like i was there conquering the world and i sort of stepped down i was like I was like, it's hard to be a man. Like, you know, you've got to bear this significant responsibility. So, and it was, it was like this deep visceral appreciation for, you know, the different trade-offs that you have at the different levels of strata. Like for some people, you know, that they, they don't want to. And it, and it's so easy to be envious of the, the different levels, but they're all necessary. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a deep moment. One one thing I was thinking of when you were telling that story is back to kind of some of the things we're talking about with with Marxism, and I think one of the things with Marxism too is that they want to take that desire away, and they actually believe that they can. So back to the kind of incentives and motivations, and so kind of to the story you're talking about where you're on the ground floor, but those little drops were hitting you, um, and and you just knew that it was different up above, and it was difficult for you to stand up and get to that upper layer. But if they could stop those droplets from coming down, if they could stop your ability to see that there might be something better up there, then they could also stop your ability to strive or desire. And then if we could lose our desire, 
then we could all just be happy because it's our desire for things we don't have that creates unhappiness, Hmm. which is true, which is why we work to go get those things. But they think if they could just get rid of those things, then we would all just be happy because we would no longer want that. Hmm. Hmm. That's a great point. The awareness of the differences is what induces the striving. But, you know, as you were telling that story, I know people that are in, you know, they're super rich, right? And they they still have struggles. They have their own, like, Mm -hmm. there's a level Mm -hmm. of responsibility that comes with most of those people's lifestyle that I'm not sure I would want to take on necessarily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I don't think Mm -hmm. a lot of people would want. So it's a great point that it's very easy. The grass is always greener, right? As they say. Yeah. But you can't, to try and, I don't know, make that go away. It just, it's not consistent with reality, right? There's, there's different levels of everything. There's wealth is not the, the exception here. It's, it's kind of the norm. So, um, yeah, I, I just feel, I keep coming back to this idea that Mark sort of diagnosed a real issue but really misdiagnosed the solution, like in, entirely misdiagnosed it. Majorly, majorly. I mean, that, that and, I, and I think we kind of say that in the book is that, you know, he, he had some accurate observations and whether it was, uh, you know, whether his proposed solutions came from a place of naivete or of vitriol or of envy or of anger or of, um, stupidity um I, I don't know was it a blend of all of them who knows but at the end of the day this the, i mean these solutions speak for themselves it's like how many deaths how much economic devastation how much backwardation like how much of all of that does one need to sort of see in order to be you know like to be to be shown like the evidence of how wrong this kind of uh, thinking is. So I don't know, maybe, maybe he needed to have a mushroom trip and sit inside a fucking <laughs> a steam room and feel the difference between the strata. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it, maybe at some point it mattered his motivations, but at this point, how much evidence could we possibly have for anything else? It, it's, I think the most failed social experiment in history is implementing those, those economic policies. Um, I'll read one more excerpt here. One, one is, thing I'd say just to hit on that just real quick yeah. is, um, you know, again, understanding when this was written. So this really came out uh, just after the turn of the industrial revolution. And again, I mean, if you go back and study history, you realize that really all of the wealth of the world really came about through the industrial revolution. It wasn't until we had machines that could free men that we could kind of have this. And so really, as soon as the industrial revolution happened, we needed new ways to mobilize capital. We didn't need ways to mobilize capital. As a matter of fact, when it was just farming um, cultures, all the money stayed within just that ecosystem. Um, it wasn't until we were freed that freed up to do that, then we started more trade. And then through the Industrial Revolution, all of a sudden we had this, we freed people up, we had this massive expansion of trade, and then we came into a new problem. How do we mobilize the capital? And so then uh, it was, well, we have capitalism, we have 
communism and we have fascism. And these are like the three economic models that we have today that, that we, that we had in the last 250 years to, to mobilize this capital. Um, and so I think maybe the world was, I, I don't know. I hate, I hate trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, but um, do we, do we have a command economy, right? Communism, fascism, or do we have a, a free economy, capitalism? And of course, today we have the benefit of hindsight, um, but it was interesting. I, I always like to try to go back and kind of imagine where he was when he wrote this. That's a great point. And, you know, he was in the lower economic strata strata as well. So you wonder how much maybe there was some mm, some hate or something built into it, right? Or some he was upset, like we were saying earlier, that it's easier to sell people the idea that people above them in the hierarchy acquired it unjustly. So maybe Marx sort of convinced himself that that was the case. Um, I don't know. He was wrong about a lot of things economically. So maybe this... He, he, he actually came from a, a well-off family. Um, but we, we had talked about this, I think, in the first episode. But he, he wanted to write philosophy, which nobody uh, valued at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think he was mad that he couldn't take care of his family and provide for his family with the skills or the desires that he wanted to do uh, versus being forced to provide something to the market that he didn't want to do. And so that's where it's like, well, hey, why can't I just do what I want to do, each according to their ability? Why can't I just do what I do? You do what you do. And then let's just all share that. And I think it was, it was more of that angle. So he's just a couple hundred years too early. Yeah, you had uh, you had made the point in uh, to, to that point. You had made the point, I think, in one of our first episodes that um, it was actually capitalism that allowed him to uh, have the market value what it is that he wanted to offer. He just didn't yeah. know it yet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny, man. It's a, the twist of history. Um, I'll read one more excerpt here. Again, still in chapter two. You guys wrote. The abolition of the individual's right to own and acquire private property as a function of their own labor, ingenuity, skill, or talent not only destroys the private property itself, but the very foundation of individual freedom and the desire, inspiration, and motivation to pursue better ends. The greatest tragedy of communism is not only the death of millions, but the death of their souls whilst still living. There is no magical end state in which privation is removed and all humans are equally happy. This is the belief of a fool. The human spirit reaches and the human mind solves problems. And when you undermine people's ability to keep what they earn, right? That you undermine that process. You undermine the human, the reaching of the human spirit and the the solving of problems by the human mind. I can't. It's hard for me to believe that a guy as intelligent as Marx, and I'm basing that on his his writing, right? He's a great writer, could not at least maybe stop and consider for a second that he's fallible. You know, some of these things are, are wrong. Maybe he's seeing it the wrong way. But I, I don't know. I digress. I guess that's hard for some people to do. Yeah, the killing of the soul part. It's um, it's it's funny hearing hearing excerpts of the book read back, um, because sometimes like I don't know, not to blow smoke up our asses, but shit was fucking deep. It sounded good, um, but it's uh, yeah, the um, I mean that that's the biggest tragedy of all. I guess the you know one of the other epiphanies that I had since I'm on a 
tangent of telling stories about the damn trip here is that um I had this kind of at, at this at this place there was a lot of old people um and you know you sort of see these people who've like lived 60 70 80 years and they're sort of nearing the end and like what a fucking journey they've been on imagine the the experiences and everything that they've had along the way um some of them were probably old enough to have either like been born around world war Two or just before or whatever and kind of endured that and you know specifically where we were like that was actually a previous uh it was a it was a battle uh point at um during world war one actually between the italians and the austrians um so there's you know quite a bit of history in that uh, region in the mountains there and i was kind of thinking about like the 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 dual tragedy of life it's like and i don't know how related this is particularly to the communist thing that we're mentioning but um you know may, maybe there's a relation or a third we can pull on and i'll kind of throw it back in your court to, to pull on it but i thought about how beautiful and tragic life is whether you for example go out in a blaze of glory so like you have your peak which is kind of like roughly where a lot of uh, you know the three of us are probably in in our call at this point in time like you know between sort of your mid 30s to mid 40s is kind of like the peak of your ability to sort of be at your best you know peak glory and everything and it's, you know do, do you go out at that peak um you know in in your the peak of your strength at the peak of your beauty and you know ability to impact the world um or do you kind of live on and be blessed with you know a long life but kind of go back to you know, return to where you started from right like so when you're an infant you're this kind of helpless uh weak dependent being basically and as you age you, you know you kind of regress back to that form uh, in the end and the tragedy there is that you you kind of look back to you know what was your peak for example and um you know and the and the torch goes out as a well-worn torch instead of um a torch that was you know burning the brightest and you know both sort of versions are a beautiful tragedy in a sense it's like you know one leaves its mark on the world um in its in you know sort of all its glory and the other one uh you know maybe leaves a legacy of a different kind um and and looks back on that period and i don't know there's there's something beautiful about the human spirit in that sense it's like this like life is this force that i don't know it expresses itself through us and it is fighting entropy the whole time and we are merely these vessels that are uh, animated with this force of life to fight entropy. And, you know, we do our part. And for a period of time, we, you know, we win. We actually are beating entropy um, until sort of entropy, you know, defeats us as individuals. But, you know, collectively, the next life comes in and goes on to, you know, continue the battle. So sort of, sort of life 
exhibits or, or life fights this battle through all of us. Um, and that sort of human spirit, that ability to reach is something special. The, the, I, don't, I don't know of a higher incarnation of that than the human. And to see, you know, ideologies to, you know, basically try and, you know, quell that and shut it off is, um, I don't know, it's sad. It's sad. It's it's ugly, and um, and you know, I, I, my my hope is that uh, we, as humans, continue to reach and you know reach through and beyond these kind of ideologies that are you know, you know, more entropy aligned than life aligned. As well said, I, I mean, I guess a big problem is the, we have to take ideologies as provisional, right? They're always just, they should always be subject to change or reevaluation. It's when you start to really take that ideology as the final dogmatic solution that our ability to deal with entropy is thwarted, right? Because you can't. Hayek wrote about this, you know, like even if you had the perfect plan that one second after you implemented it, it would start to deviate from reality because reality is changing all the time. So even if you had the perfect plan, you can't be dogmatic to that. So obviously you can't be dogmatic to any specific ideology. Um, and yeah, it's kind of simple in a way, but I don't know, hard to communicate that principle to people um and I, yeah i don't know a life seems like a life lived well is you ultimately have to live it beyond yourself whether that's you know having kids or engaging in philanthropy altruism you know some type of positive legacy something like that um i mean that's where I feel like I derive the most satisfaction in life personally. It's like when you see, when you see your efforts sort of shining in the lives of others, that that's a good, good feeling. And it takes a little while maybe to have that realization. Um, but yeah, and I think, I, I think, you know, they, um, they, um, they almost want to use it to demoralize people, which is this victim mentality. So look, you can't ever get ahead. You don't have anything to offer. The game is rigged against you. Why even bother? Why even try? Right. And so, uh, unfortunately, you know, for those those humans who maybe have a, a weak drive or a weak strive for better, uh, they're easily shut down. Right. And I think um, Dr. Matthias Desmond he did that uh, whole mass formation psychosis thing. Right. And he talked about how uh, the population is really divided into three groups and you basically have 40% in the middle that can go either way. And then you have like 30 on the bottom that will never go with it. And then 30 that easily go with it. And humans, I think are a little bit are like that where, um, not every human has this super strong desire to conquer and strive. Um, in the Bible, the story is, um, you know, the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians and through Exodus, uh, you know, Moses led them out and uh, through all these miracles, right? They saw, um, they crossed the Red Sea, then, the Israel, uh, then, uh, then all the Egyptians were killed and they got to the desert and they wandered around the desert a little bit after all, all these miracles to get out of there. And they said, 
the people said, let us just go back to Egypt where we were slaves because at least right. we had food. And so um, there's some people, unfortunately, that are like that. Um, and maybe that's that 40% in the middle. And they need the 30% of the people that strive and drive to show them what's possible back to kind of Alex's story before, right? Those droplets that are draining down. Well, if they can do it, I know I can do it. Um, and so we need those examples of, of how we can strive, how, how, you know, how much better things can be. Um, we need, we need, we need to see that. Um, and it also needs to be encouraged. Right. And so unfortunately not everybody has that, that strong drive. And so we need encouragement, but they do the opposite, which is to demoralize people. Um, so I think there's that 40% in the middle that, again, I think the, the point of the book and what I think Alex and I were trying to do was create this as a message of hope. And encouragement, trying to encourage people to be better versions of themselves, because I think we both agree that that 40% in the middle, they can kind of go either way. And with a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of education, and a little bit of seeing what's possible, uh, then they'll strive for that. And then they'll want that. I think that's a great place to bring it to a close for today. A message of hope. Guys, thank you so much.